we once had. We were at an orchard, and we came across some apple trees. And as we were walking around and picked some of these fruit, um, we tasted them, and we knew, we knew they were apples because, how do you think I knew they were apples? Well, because someone told me it's an apple tree. So therefore, I knew it was an apple. And so I picked one off, and I just ate it. I didn't bother peeling it, because you don't peel apples, because you lose all the goodness. But in not peeling it and taking a bite, what do you think I found? An orange. It wasn't an apple after all, okay? Because here's the thing. If it was an apple tree, what would I have got from it? Apples. You only get apples. Even I know that. I don't do any horticulture, okay? You only get apples from an apple tree. If the tree that you're picking fruit from gives you an orange, regardless of what anybody has told you, it's an orange tree. And that's really a foundation for what we're going to be looking at this morning. Here's what our Lord said. He used this very terminology, Matthew 7. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick Grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles or apples from orange trees. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. So the fruit of a tree reveals the identity of a tree. That's where we're going. If you only get that much from today, you're doing well. You'd be a greater farming. Nothing else, but you'd be greater farming. Okay, but at least take that with you. Three points. We're going to try and get the three done, at least two. Number one. We're to live by the Spirit. It's the first heading, okay? The Christian, we're to live by the Spirit. So we're working from verse 16 right through to 26. We've got 10 verses to cover. Let's go. Verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit. So Paul has been arguing. Okay, He's setting up a contrast here. You're going to have to help me out here because I have memory issues. What does Paul been arguing for the last three chapters. It's in contrast to what he's saying here. What has he been arguing? What do the Jewish people do? How do they function? In contrast. Okay, they live by the law. And he's been arguing all through the Galatians. What's the issue with that? Yeah, you can't do it. The Lord doesn't produce holy people. It makes people worse sinners. The law, as an external force, never managed to successfully beat people into holiness. It didn't. It never managed. So Paul says, in contrast to living by the law, I'm telling a Christian he's to live by the Spirit. And there's a contrast. Can you see? You either live by Mosaic law or you live by the Holy Spirit. Remember what Luther said about Moses? I quoted this a couple of weeks ago. You won't remember, unless you, even I didn't remember. But I'll give you the slide. Look, what did Luther say about Moses? Yeah, just in case, you know, I sometimes get criticized for saying things, but I want you to hear he is the leading theologian of the world, or was. But I want you to hear what he's saying. Moses is dead. He's not just, that's, that's not just an observation of history. What's, what's he saying? He's not just observing historical fact. What's he saying, Luther? 
He's gone. Get rid of him. He's dead. You know what you do with dead people? You bury them six foot under, and within a few generations, no one remembers them. Moses is dead, gone, history. He's of no further. Look, he's one of the greatest theologians that ever lived. If it wasn't for Luther, I've said this before, you and I would not be sitting here. He triggered the Reformation from the Roman Catholic Church. And he wants it to be established that justification is by faith alone, not Moses. So he must be out. So the point is this. You see, no, Moses may be gone. The law may be gone. We now live by the Spirit. But the Spirit is nevertheless interested in producing what in the believer. What do you think is interested in producing in us? The, the holiness that God demands. It's related to the fruit. Certainly, he, he's going to be sure that we receive the holiness that God demands. So, if you, and so verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not on the law. So we're trying to get the holiness. If, if we're saying if we're led by the Spirit, the law has been removed from the Christian's life, and instead of a law... The Holy Spirit is now at work. And here's what Andrew Andrew says. The outward conduct of the believer is to be dictated and controlled no longer by law, but by an inward spiritual principle. Something's got to happen from within. It's It's not to be dictated by external laws, social conventions, herd instincts, peer pressure, the expectation of others, or even the fear of what people think. What's Edgar's... Was it there? Did, did that come up? Could we go back there? Says, Thank you very much. Uh, uh, what's he saying? Someone sum up for me. Do you want to have a go, Phil? Yeah. Did you just say that a bit louder? Yeah. Not by law. Okay, the outward conduct of a Christian's life, right, is no longer regulated by an outward law. That's why we say Moses is gone. We don't need him to regulate how we live. You don't need the Ten Commandments. They never did the Jews any good, and they won't do you any good. What do you need to be holy? The Spirit of Jesus within transforming you from within. Hence, verse 16, so I say, live by the Spirit, and he promises, if you, forget Moses, if you've got the Spirit, he promises, what does he promise? Someone read those for me, it's very, very important. If you live by the Spirit, you will not, you won't break God's commandments. You won't, you won't fall short of what God expects of you. Your life will be pleasing to Jesus not by keeping law, which is impossible, but by having the Spirit within and living in response to Him. So verse 17, let me take you back there. He explains for us. For the sinful nature, that's our old self, desires what is contrary to the Spirit who is now living within us. And the Spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so you do not do what you want. Paul's presenting something here, which is key. What is the sinful nature? Someone tell me what that is. 
It is, and so it is that, but let's go even more beyond that. What is the sinful nature? Someone give me a quintessential definition of what the sinful nature is. It's the fallen nature. It is. Who do we get it from? Who possesses it now? All humans, okay? Okay, that's the sinful nature. But what happens when we become Christian? The sinful nature is what we inherited, we were born with it. What happens when you become a Christian? It dies. And is replaced by? Yes, in justification. We're going to come to that later. But it's it replaced by the Spirit of Jesus, okay? The old nature goes, the Spirit of Jesus comes within, which means in a Christian, there's a fundamental change that's going to take place. Can you see? When I visit a person outside the church... I'm speaking when engaging with someone whose old nature is living. When I'm speaking with someone who professes to be a Christian, I'm speaking with someone whose old nature has been crucified and a new person, the Spirit is living within them. I'm talking to two different people, hence Galatians 5. Listen to this. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature. It's dead. Galatians 2, for through the law, I die to the law so that I may live for God. A Christian is fundamentally someone who is absolutely different at the DNA level to your neighbor. Lorraine, you are nothing like your neighbor other than you both possess a nose and a mouth and possibly two eyes. Okay? Beyond that, there is no similarity. One possesses Adam's nature. The other one has had that nature crucified and has the spirit of Christ within. But nevertheless, that nature that has been crucified seems, in its, on its exit, as it were, puts up a fight. Look, let me see a terrible illustration. But if you've ever seen a chicken being slaughtered, the way they slaughtered them in some parts of the world, what happens even when it's mortally wounded? It still has an effect. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. This nature is mortally wounded, crucified. But even like crucifixion, how long does it take for a crucifixion victim to die? Days sometimes. And so the idea Paul is conveying is, is that the nature is crucified, is dying, is mortally wounded, but on its death, there's a rattle of sorts. There's an ongoing battle. So therefore, this battle now, when I talk to my own Christian friend and I talk about giving up, giving up uh, I don't know, robbing banks, right? I'm asking him to do something that is natural to his nature. This is something we have to understand. We're asking him to stop doing something that is natural to his nature. It's natural when we have the nature of Adam to do what Adam did. What did Adam do? What was, what was his quintessential sin? His, yeah, his way. He's rebelling against God. So when we ask the world to be good Christians, it's a stupid thing to ask. Because it cuts against their nature. But when you ask the Christian, or when you talk about the Christian to stop robbing banks. What are you saying to him? 
Yeah, you're asking him to line up with the new nature. You're asking him something that is within the realms of possibility, within the realms of reality. You're asking him to respond to who he now is, the real person. So I say, verse 16, live by the Spirit and you will not... It's a guarantee. If we respond to the Spirit within, Paul's not lying. And these are Paul's words. If you don't believe me, check them for yourself. And if you don't believe the English NIV translation, I can give you a Greek one in my office. Okay? He says, if you live by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Here's the NIV commentary. Naturally, the sinful nature is to become increasingly subdued as the Christian learns to learns by grace to walk in the Spirit, but it's never eliminated in this life. So the Christian is never released from the necessity of consciously choosing to go in God's way and to depend on His grace. Being holy is something only a Christian can do properly. Being holy is something that a Christian becomes as he realizes the nature he now possesses. As he realizes who he is, a renewed creature with a new nature. So he says, since we live by the Spirit, verse 25, since he lives in us, this is how we become holy. Let us return to Moses and start keeping these Ten Commandments. Is that what he says? No. Don't get confused. Seriously, he doesn't say that. That's history. Since we live by the Spirit, how do you get holy? You keep in step with the Spirit. This is from the Greco-Roman world. Roman soldiers were, were, you know, did the military with absolute precision and brilliance. And the idea here is, if you were in the army and you were told to keep in step, okay, you kept perfectly Instead, what you did, you followed the guy in front, who followed the guy in front, who followed the guy in front, who was following the commander, okay? So the idea is that the Christian is following the commander of our souls, the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. As he stirs and moves us, our job is to follow suit. Is to follow the inklings of what's happening inside. Let me give you an example. It's a bit like this. Who here has got hair? Anyone with, anyone with lots of hair? Well, you'll do Ralph a little bit there. Okay, you got some of you. Look, say you went for a haircut. Probably can't imagine that, but say you went for a haircut, okay? You're sitting there, and the hairdresser grabs your head. And what do they do when they want to get to that side or that side? What are they doing? They're pushing you. Now, if you sit there and you're determined, I am not going to move, you know, they're just not going to manage it, are they? You know, so when part yeah, he probably will. So when the hairdresser is moving your head, okay, a force outside of yourself, what do you do? Subconsciously, what are you doing when they do that? You are. You are, you are keeping in step with the hairdresser, aren't you? Okay, it's not you who's doing it. It's, an, it's a force outside of yourself, but your response to that force is to... Keep in step with the hairdresser. Okay, that's what Paul is saying to the Galatians here. The force is not external, it's internal. It's the spirit. Since you live by the spirit, when he moves your head, what do you do? 
you move with him. You cooperate. You respond. When the Spirit tells you to stop robbing banks, when he challenges your conscience, okay, what do you do? When your mates come round and knock on the door and say, Lorraine, are you coming to the Commonwealth at 4 a.m. tonight? Okay, your mates are telling you to do that. Your spirit within is, is enlivening your conscience and impressing upon you that's sinful. So what do you do? It, it, there is a sword, and you, you're called to go with the Spirit. Yeah, and unlike the unbeliever who has little power to resist that, you have all the power of the Spirit to do that. So he's asking us to do something for which we're empowered. Verse 16, so I say, live by the Spirit. Verse 16, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. The Galatians are becoming Jesus-like. They're freed from law, but not to indulge in their sinful habits of former lives, but they're freed from law to use that freedom to respond to the inklings and the persuasion and the conscience that the Spirit is working behind. So the first point, we're to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. He is the replacement of the law. He is instead of the law. No longer a written code externally. Remember what Jeremiah 29 says? In, in, in those days, what would God do with his law? It won't be an external thing. It will be written on the hearts by the Spirit. So we're to live by him, not by law. That's the contrast. Not by law, but by spirit. Secondly, the characteristics. So Paul is going to move on to the characteristics of the sinful nature. The characteristics of the sinful nature. You may, you know, they may well be asking, okay, we've got rid of Moses, so what do we do? How do we know what's right or wrong? So Paul spells some details out. The first thing he says is verse 19, 20. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. He's saying that it's fundamental. People are aware, know naturally what is wrong, even if they can't do it. So he spells them out. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, jealousy, discord, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. It's a very important, let me come over here. It's a very important phrase here. What's those three words, what are those three words suggesting? There's more. Thank you. There's more. A lot more. That's just a sample list. So Paul is saying, look, here's some, but you know there are more. Again, in the Greco-Roman world, there were these lists, oft, often lists of vices and virtues. Here's a list of, uh, to begin with, vices. It's only touching the tip of the iceberg. That's the point here. It's just touching the tip of the iceberg. These may have been some of the things that are pertinent to Galatia. Who knows? why he's chosen these particular things. But look, a commentator, Hansen, breaks them up nicely into four headings. Illicit sex, religious heresy, social conflict, drunkenness. Let's look at the first one. first one is a group. Those three things are, can be grouped as illicit, improper 
sex. Okay, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, that comes from a Greek word, porn, word, porneia. We get, what word do we get from that Greek word, porneia? Pornography, okay? It's a, it's, I know we use it for one facet of the reality, is images that are sexual, but that word porneia just means anything of that nature, okay? So it's, it's, a, it's a generic word that sums up really what the second two things are. The second two things are impurity, like the go back please, sorry, in the same one, impurity and debauchery, they're related to the heading. The headings is the immorality, the sexual immorality. The two things that follow are related to it. You, I don't know what you know about the Greco-Roman world, but has anybody ever been to Pompeii? Anyone ever been to Pompeii? Okay, did you visit some of the, some of the houses, the mosaics? There were some colorful images. Okay, some very sexually colorful images. You may, you may think... So I'm not as young as in here, but I, I do apologize. I have to use these terms. It's necessary for my message. But pornography may be new. It's not. The fact it's digital is new, but the existence of it is nothing new. In fact, there's nothing new under the sun. You've only got to look at some of Roman artwork to appreciate that this kind of conduct was common in the ancient world. And so Paul is dealing with it. In today's world, let me, it could be described like this. Um, Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery could be described as adultery, sex outside of marriage, cyber sex, pornography, lust, fantasies, window shopping. That all come under this category. And if it's not clear, if it wasn't clear before this morning, that's bad stuff. Okay? It's not good. It's not something a Christian ought to be engaged in. So Paul is giving this as an example of what is bad. And he moves on to religious heresy next. That's idolatry and witchcraft. Witchcraft is still prevalent today. Idolatry is gone. It's extinct. We don't, we don't, have, we don't have gods on our shelves, do we? So idolatry is extinct, yeah? No. It's no, why do you say that? Because idolatry is anything that we worship. Anything. It can be a person, it can be a thing, it can be a passion. So idolatry and witchcraft, okay? Whether it's the occult or whether it's something that becomes God. He moves on to social conflict next. And look at these. Uh, he puts all together. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. They're, they're all things that are more respectable, aren't they? I mean, you know, we may, uh, you know, you might think, Adultery is bad. So is murder. Okay? Yeah, but, you know, selfish ambition? Okay. Envy? You know, well, you know, jealousy? Well, we all get jealous, don't we? And can you see how we, how we almost desensitize ourselves against these sins? You ask somebody out there, you know, uh, about forgiveness or tell them that Jesus can forgive them, what's their response? I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't committed adultery. Yeah, or oh, they may say that. But it's normally, but I haven't done anything wrong. That's because, because they and we too could possibly regard these things as, you know, kind of white, you know, less important. And yet Paul puts them in the same 
list. The categories I'm giving you are not from Paul. They're from a theologian. Paul puts them all together. So look, jealousy. Let me deal with discord first. Discord is that type of person in a church situation that stealthily disunifies a church. You get those in churches. It's something that can be very dangerous to the life of the church. Okay, you've got jealousy. That, uh, that's just, you know, thinking of an evil way about something or someone else. And then envy is a step further than jealousy. It's the absolute craving of what someone else has got, whether their husband, whether their car, whether their house, or whether their job, or whatever else it may be. And so these things Paul regards as things that are contrary to the spirit living in us. And the last one is drunkenness. And that may sound all fun for Christians, particularly Christians who, who are open to drinking. You know, you get a little tipsy if you have one too many. And it's kind of amusing, isn't it? Except it's not. Paul doesn't think it is. Drunkenness leads to the most vile sins because we lose all our inhibitions. And for the, in the Greco-Roman world, this is when they had their, excuse me again, this is when they had their sex orgies often associated with excessive drinking, leading to this kind of conduct. It's why, Christian, Adelaide City Centre at 11 o'clock on Friday or Saturday night probably isn't the best place for you to be walking through. When people are transitioning from nightclub to nightclub, probably not the wisest thing for you to be witness to that. Okay? Stay at home. Or if you're out of the theatre, get to your car quickly and get home before you're seeing things that just won't be healthy for you to look at. Do you see the point? And so, and neither therefore be participant in them, if that needs to be said. Verse 21b, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul has been arguing vehemently against law, against Moses, and he may give the impression, oh, it's all about grace. I love grace. You know, all that law stuff's gone. Now go grace. It's not quite like that. Okay? Because Paul wants you to be known. Look, I, I warn you, he says, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit Jesus' heaven. And notice here, he goes, I warn you as I did before. What, is, what does that mean? I warn you as I did before. What's that suggesting? He's now writing to them, I warn you as I did before. What's he suggesting by that phrase, as I did before? They didn't know it, but what happened before? He told them. He meant, he meant his preaching included what? Yeah, a warning to ungodliness. It means Paul's preaching wasn't motivational speeches on how to better your life. Okay, it's not what he preached when he went to church to church. When he went to church to church, what was he preaching? Because he tells us. What was he preaching? He was warning against ungodliness. You see, it's true that we can fill a building with hundreds, perhaps even thousands of people by preaching motivational speeches, but that doesn't mean we're making genuine... Here's the word. Disciples. You don't get into heaven for putting your hand up in a crusade. You get to heaven if, you, if you're one of, what, one of what? A disciple. You see, motivational speeches do not make disciples. They grow 
numeric congregations, what makes a real disciple or a real Christian is to listen to Bible preaching that preaches like this. However painful it may be. Paul is simply saying this, friends, that the preaching of sin is a mark of authentic church. And therefore, a believer whose life is characterized by this old Adamic nature, this nature that Adam possessed, suggests that that Christian is uncrucified, a slave to sin, and doomed to an eternity without Jesus. And so Paul says this to a church, and I have to say to Living Word Church, if our lives are characterized by that list, it means we're not converted. Here's the truth, and painful one. Members of churches, members of the welcome team, members of the music group, members of junior church, people who host services, members of leadership teams, and pastors of evangelical churches won't all make it into heaven. Are we aware of that? Because if our lives are flavored by this type of conduct with complete disregard, with complete blasé, then ultimately Paul says, look, I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a sobering reality that if my life is not changing, I'm not a Christian. If I don't feel the weight of sting, of sin, and feel repulsed by it, hate it, I'm not a Christian. And again, don't crucify the preacher. All the preacher does is relay the words of Jesus. He's the one you need to battle with, with here. Paul is absolutely passionate that there is no law, but that we're in Jesus. But nevertheless, our justification must lead to what? There are theological terms here. Our justification, tell me what justification is. Yes, it's when we're made instantly right in Jesus' eyes, but it's, but it's not truth. You're not right instantly. <laughs> You're only right in his eyes, okay? That's justification. Justification must lead to what? Sanctification. What does that mean? You must become what justification declares you to be. Yes. Justification declares you to be holy. You're not. You just are in God's sight. Because of Jesus. Sanctification is, you must become what justification is heralding. Sanctification is holiness. It's what justification, when someone is justified, it's assumed that they will ultimately become sanctified. Finally in heaven, but on the journey become increasingly like Jesus. Where there is no progressive, visible, ongoing transformation of life, there is, says Paul, no salvation. Let me say this as bluntly as I can. I really don't care what you believe. I don't care. It doesn't mean anything to me. If your life isn't making an effort to back up that faith. 
Seriously. I'm never impressed. Let me tell you this. I'm never impressed by someone who says, I believe in Jesus. Because the devil believes in him too. What kind of life are you living? What are you doing with the opportunities that God has given you? I mean, it's a bit like this. Look, you know, we've flown what, nearly 11,000 miles from the UK to Australia. And you know what? I walk around and see people supporting Man United. That is Man United, isn't it? <laughs> like, I'm like, they're well, a different country, man. What's the matter with you? But forgive me if you're a Man United supporter. Okay. <laughs> but look, you may put on a Man United top. That doesn't mean you're a Man United player. Just because you're wearing a T-shirt and kicking the ball around in your garden, that doesn't make you a Man United player. Okay? A Man United player sits on the bench on Saturdays and gets called up to play and gets a salary from the team. You may have put on coming to church. I'm in church Sunday morning. I'm a Christian. Just because you're here this morning, you're not going to come next week now, are you? <laughs> just, be, just because you're here this morning wearing the T-shirt doesn't make you a Christian, friend. The only real converts are ones who are battling this nature. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of Christ. So here's a question I have to ask myself. Look, as your pastor, look, like, okay, I preach the Bible, but wow, you can teach a donkey to do that. Okay, okay, you know, uh, you know I, I know the Bible a little bit. Wow, I can teach more on that too. Okay, the thing about your pastor, the thing what I need to ask myself is what is the direction of my life. When I fall prey to one of these sins, and we all will pray to them at some time, what is my reaction? Is it? Well, okay, you know, that's just another bank. You know, you know they've got plenty of money in banks anyway. Or is my reaction... could I have done that? That's against the, the, the thing my conscience knows is wrong. You know, am I on my knees? Do I weep? I asked you this last week. Do I weep when we fall prey to sin? Does my life look like that? Or does my life look like Jesus? But nevertheless, with struggles, no doubt. With temptation, no doubt. With failings, no doubt. But whenever we fall... There's something that stirs us to transformation. You see, the character of the sinful nature must never monopolize a master or Christian. Otherwise, Paul is saying, you may be free from Moses, but your conduct is revealing the Spirit of Jesus does not reside in you because if the Spirit of Jesus resides in you, he transforms you from within. And hence, the third point. I'm going to finish this in, in just a very brief moment now. The characteristics of the spirit-filled nature. So in contrast then, we've had the vices or the negative. Here's then, that's what our lives would not look like if we're filled with the spirit. Here's now what our lives should look like if we're filled with the spirit. We get this crazy notion that if you're filled with the spirit, you do all this stuff. I don't care about that stuff, says Paul. If you're filled with the spirit, this is what your life looks like. 
Remember what he says? You can cast out a demon, Matthew 7, and still find yourself in. Someone called Matthew 7, you can cast out demons, okay? One of the miraculous gifts, and still find yourself where, according to Matthew 7? Yeah, in what location? Hell. Okay? Don't, you know, don't tell me you're filled with the Spirit because you can cast out the demon. Wow. A bunch of those are going to hell, Jesus said, Matthew 7. Okay? The way we know that we're filled with the Spirit, says Paul, the quintessential mark that I'm filled with the Spirit is not that I cast out demons. The quintessential mark that I'm filled with the Spirit is what? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are you spirit-filled? I don't want to hear your tongues. And I'm not that I'm against tongues. I don't want to hear that. That doesn't tell me you're spirit-filled. Who cares you can do that? I can show you Hindus that can speak in tongues. Seriously. Are you spirit-filled? We want to see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. They are the marks of being spirit-filled. That's how we distinguish that we are really Christian. That's how we know the Spirit is within. Here's what Ronald Fung writes. The phrase directly ascribes a power of fructification. Yeah, okay, it's a weird thing, even if I pronounce it correctly. Not to the believer himself, but to the Spirit. And he effectively hints that the qualities enumerated are not the result of strenuous observance of an external legal code. Moses, it's not that. Okay, Moses doesn't produce these. But these are the natural product or harvest of a life controlled by someone who is spirit-filled. Okay, let me recoin the whole terminology. Okay, this is what it means in Living Word Church, spirit-filled. It means you are exhibiting love, joy, patience, peace. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what Paul, that's what Fung is arguing here. This is not a new set of moral codes. It's not like, every Moses, but here's a new code. That's not what's going on here. This is not a new moral code. Okay? It's not a new law. Otherwise, what was the point of getting rid of Moses if you're just going to give us a new Moses without the beard? Okay? It's not a new set of codes. Not at all. This is rather the effects of an activity of a person living within. Okay, not a new law, but the effects of the activity of a new person living within. Matthew 7, it's by the fruit you recognize them, because likewise every good tree bears good fruit. Every bad tree, wrong way around, bears bad fruit. So an apple tree bears apple trees not because it's trying to bear apple trees, trying its best not to get grapes. An apple tree bears apple tree because from within happens what? It's produced from within. It comes from within. And so the idea is, Christian, that we've been transferred or converted into Jesus' likeness by a power flowing out of us, not by law. 
Now, these nine things are not... Well, let me, let me put a list. I've given it away already. How many fruits of the Spirit are there? Nine. No! Sorry, mate. Sorry. Now, I'm going to ask again. How many fruits of the Spirit are there? It's a, it's a question on that list. How many fruits of the Spirit are there? One. There's only one. Yes, it's one. There's one fruit. Okay? Okay. No, it's not even love. The nine are one. The one are nine. Do you, do you see the point? And what we're saying is that this is one collection. Okay? The fruit, the term fruit, it covers the whole group. Which means I can't therefore start saying what? Yeah. Oh, I've got lots of love. But I don't do patience. That's not my thing. It's not my personality. It doesn't run in my family. Okay? No, it means that for me to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, there's only one fruit of the Spirit. And it, and it, and it has nine facets to it. Which means there must be elements of all of this flowing through my life. Okay, I finished. Let me, let me leave you with this. If you do farming and you plant some apple trees, and when they bear fruit, you get oranges, you really shouldn't be feeling good about that fact. Okay? You know, if you think the fact that this apple tree has produced oranges, right? You know, think, oh, okay, well, I've had a good start. I've got, I, I, I got oranges this year, but next year I'm going to get apples. You know, we're working towards it. I'll be better manure, pony manure. Okay, and I'll, and I'll put, put, put uh, not just rainwater, filtered rainwater. You know, you're still not going to get the fruit you want. Because if the tree is the wrong tree, it'll always produce the same type of tree. Christian, here's the point. If I'm only producing bad fruit, if I have no inkling towards living holy, if I'm never bothered about, bothered about breaking anything Jesus says I should do, the issue isn't I've got to try harder and I'll get the right fruit. The issue is I'm the wrong tree. I'm the wrong tree. So, Christian, what, what tree are we? I'm not asking you what you believe. Remember, I said I don't care. What tree are we? Well, I think that's something we need to answer for ourselves. What tree are we? And we answer that by the fruit that people can pick off us. If someone came to you and began picking, what fruit would they get? So let me leave you with this encouragement. If our lives are exhibiting Christ-likeness, not because we're trying to obey the Ten Commandments, but because something from within is changing us, then it's because we're the Christian tree. Be encouraged. You may have down moments, down days, downtime, struggle, but the spirit within is transforming you. You feel remorseful and repentant, and you begin to change. God bless you. If however, if you're honest with yourself, and you can sit there and say, do you know what does? I don't really care if I come to church next week. It doesn't really bother me. I'm just as happy at home as I am here. Do you know what I'm saying? I really don't care what I watch on TV. It just doesn't bother me. 
And we don't care, you know, what I say to my colleagues at work. If they wind me up, I give them one. You know, you know, that's an exaggerated version. But if that's us, and we're a member of this church, can I say, I think you need to be converted. You need to bow before Jesus afresh. Forget your baptism, it means nothing. And say, Lord, I believe in you. Please forgive me my sins. Please be my master. Make me like one of your disciples. Can I encourage you to think about if you need to be converted? What, you know, one of the reasons I push the whole church, and I haven't been very successful, I think we've got about 60% on the course, to do Christianity Explored, is because I'm asking you to re-examine where you stand in the faith. That's why I've asked you all to do it. I'm asking Christians to re-examine where you stand in the faith. And I'm asking myself the very same question. The fruit of the Spirit is the work of the Spirit. And it makes us like Jesus without a single law being preached. Let's pray.